Ignition sequence start. Six, five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Tower cleared. This is your co-host, Eleanor, welcoming you to Space 3D. In this episode, Emily, Tom, and I continue our discussion with NASA cardiovascular physiologist John Charles, delving into the mysteries of space motion sickness, pondering emergency egress scenarios, the potential for dual use of spacecraft equipment, the history of ultrasound use on the shuttle and International Space Station, and finally, comparing research approaches between the U.S. and Russian medical and scientific counterparts. I wanted to turn our attention to some questions about motion sickness and uh, anything you might be able to relate regarding the whole evolution of understanding space motion sickness and uh, treating it. And uh, it seemed like that was kind of a, a lot of focus of early... Uh, research on shuttle. Uh, so I'm wondering if you give us some, some uh, perspective on that. Yeah, it was a, a focus of early research on shuttle, and that was because, again, the shuttle was supposed to be uh, doing lots of important work fairly fairly early in flight. Don't forget that at least uh, uh, peripherally, one of the early reasons for the space shuttle being the way it was was that it was supposed to have a, a potential military use, and uh, for military applications, uh, it would it would potentially be launched out of Vandenberg Air Force Base into a polar mission, a polar orbit. And within one orbit, uh, the crew members would be up and about and deploying a payload and then uh, buttoning up and coming back and landing within a couple of orbits. So, you know, within four or five hours, essentially the length of John Glenn's first flight, the idea was that the astronauts would get up out of their seats, move around a great deal, deploy payloads, maybe even do a brief spacewalk to fix a, a broken payload, and then button up, come back in, and land. There was a lot of concern that uh, any kind of motion sickness early in a space shuttle mission might derail that plan completely and invalidate its use as a, you know, as a, a military launch vehicle, as well as just being just making it generally a not fun place to be for the you know the hours or days that people are motion sick in flight. Don't forget on STS-5, uh, Joe Allen and Bill Lenore were supposed to do the the first shuttle spacewalk. Joe Allen's suit, I think, had a technical problem, and there was some discussion of Bill Lenore going out by himself. But at some point, he experienced what he later described as a wet burp, which meant that he sort of threw up in his mouth a little bit. But he was he was uh, honest enough to tell everybody about it, and uh, they canceled the, the spacewalk anyhow. And that suddenly became the focus of space motion sickness uh, uh, and its operational impact. Again, this was, the, as I said about the uh, uh, medical, uh, the private medical conference, you know, if it's if it's a medical event that has a mission impact, then the flight director needs to be notified so he can make the appropriate changes to the mission. Well, this had an appropriate, this had a, med- a, a operational impact on the mission and it brought a lot of attention to the problem. That attention was such that on STS 7 and 8, Dedicated physician crew members were added to those missions to, under, to, to do the research to understand space motion sickness. The, the research program is designed by Dr. Bill Thornton, who was a scientist astronaut. Uh, Dr. Norm Thagard was added to seven, and Dr. Thornton himself was added to eight. By General Abramson, who was our uh, associate administrator for space flight at headquarters, specifically to solve this motion sickness problem so we don't have this problem anymore. Of course, Dr. Thornton and his uh, 
as a proxy, Dr. Thagard, on those two flights collected a great deal of data, but they didn't solve the motion sickness problem uh, because it wasn't, you know, something that was easy to solve engineering-wise. It, it, it is a physiological phenomenon that has many causes and many manifestations. And generally speaking, what happened was as missions got longer, the first, you know, hours or days of discomfort were considered just the price you pay for getting into space. And if you're in space for a week or two weeks, well, you know, you can sort of tolerate a day's worth of being not very comfortable. And if you're in space for six months or a year, you don't even remember not being very comfortable except that, you know, it's a it's pretty hard to forget being that uncomfortable, but still it doesn't really impact your, your performance in space flight. So the astronauts do still have periods of motion sickness and flight is just not that big a deal anymore. Uh, they have medications they can take. Mitodrine, for example, is a good one for putting you out of your misery for, you know, 10 or 12 hours until you're starting to feel a little bit better. The scopolamine dexedrine has been used by people. There are other, other medications that can address different aspects of the motion sickness syndrome. But generally speaking, it's just one of those things you have to put up with and eventually get over it and you move on and then your space flight is pretty uh, remarkable after that. Yeah. Wow. Very interesting. And promethazine, is that still used? I know that was first used. Promethazine, yes. Yes. That is the, the, I'm told that's the drug of choice. All right. Good old, uh, good old Fenergan. Um, (laughs) the, um, the last question we have regarding shuttle is that uh, after the Challenger uh, Challenger episode, there was a lot of effort obviously placed on how to handle emergency egress. What contingencies were put in place if shuttle landed at a non-U.S. runway like in Africa and crew were unable to egress unassisted? Um, curious about what medical treatment items were on board in that event and what the protocols were. Well... That's, that's an area that I was not directly involved with, but I did talk to some of the flight surgeons that were involved with that. The, the, the landing sites, uh, and that would be in Maroon in Spain and in uh, Banjul, I think, in the Gambia, were the ones that were most likely to be the, the transatlantic abort landing sites. And uh, those sites were were activated before each shuttle launch just in case. And uh, I know they dispatched flight surgeons out to those landing sites to uh, to supervise anything that uh, any shuttle that happened to find its way there uh, after an aborted uh, launch into orbit. I don't, I have never heard of any of any augmented medical capabilities on board, but again, it's not my area of specialty. Uh, I suspect that the idea was if you did land uh, at a remote site, the idea was to get out of the orbiter and safe it as much as possible and probably then move away from it because it would not be as safe as if it was at Edwards or at Kennedy with the appropriate uh, ground crew and ground equipment equipment to, to actually uh, continue uh, uh, safing it for for, for people to be near. Right. So uh, I think if you landed at one of those remote sites, you probably considered yourself lucky and you just started to got out of it and, and went to the ready room and waited for, waited to be picked up. This is uh, this is Tom asking about that. Those the transatlantic aborts, those were those were almost immediately so that um, and those were stood up for a flight. So you're talking about other potential landing sites during the mission? Well no, I'm talking about the transatlantic abort sites at uh, they would have to be a pretty serious problem to try and come down any place except Edwards or Kennedy during a shuttle mission. You know, they did land one time on White Sands and promised never to do that again because the gypsum sand got into all the, the gears and machinery and had, they had to spend a lot of time cleaning out the Columbia and getting it flight ready for the next flight. So generally speaking, any any medical situation was dealt with in orbit as much as possible, and it was, it was they called it a, a stand-and-fight attitude. 
until they could get to a landing site that was prepared, and that would be either Edwards or, or Kennedy. Just another a- ancillary question. I don't know if you have any knowledge of this, but I know after uh, after Challenger, of course, there had to be emergency egress capability put put into the shuttle, and eventually the uh, sort of the pole with the uh, you know going out on the pole to be able to get clear of the Delta wing was was the uh, solution that was was uh, enacted. But I do understand that there were some plans potentially to use ejection seats, in, installing injection seats uh, into the shuttles. Do you have? I'm just curious about any knowledge you may have that, and any any opinions you have on which one maybe you would have preferred. Yeah, that, that's you know that's uh, that's a very interesting question. I did read up a lot about that because I was very interested in that aspect as as well. I was never involved in that work, but I was very interested as a, an observer and a sort of a, you know, st- st- sitting around the water fountain listening to the discussions. Ejection seats, were, as you know, were on the flight deck of Columbia for the first four uh, test flights. Uh, in fact, the, the ejection seats stayed on board through STS-5 uh, as well, and then they were pulled off before STS-9 for the, the Space Lab mission. But they were saved after more than two people came on board. Nobody seriously imagined any commander and pilot ejecting and leaving the two mission specialists behind if, if it came to that. And Vance Brand made it a point to say that he was his seats were, were not going to be functional anyhow as long as uh, everybody didn't get them. Ejection seats take up a lot of volume inside of a spacecraft. They take up a lot of mass. The shuttle was always nose-heavy, and they had to worry about ballasting the aft end to keep it trimmed appropriately for gliding flight. Uh, so putting extra mass in the front really wasn't well received and as i recall reading various uh, reports and studies the idea of putting ejection seats or ejection pods uh, into the forward aspect of the orbiter just pretty much invalidated flying it you could build you could put those in but you couldn't carry anything else useful on the orbiter so there'd be no point in flying it with you know with that, those safety systems so it was decided that uh, the, the orbiter was, in fact, the orbiter, as remarkable a, a machine as it was and as, as productive as it was, it was not designed to be as safe as more modern vehicles will be. It had a different design philosophy. The design philosophy was it will not fail and we're going to have enough redundancy in flight to keep it from failing. But certain things like breakup on, on reentry and, and failure of the booster on launch just aren't going to happen. So we, we, we're going to make sure they're not going to have it by building redundancy into those systems so that it doesn't, doesn't happen and we don't have to worry about getting people out of the vehicle. As you, as you note then, they added the escape hole, the pressure suits and all that stuff as a last ditch, as a better than nothing uh, approach to, to recovery. And uh, if you're designing the orbiter over again uh, with uh, launch and uh, reentry uh, abort scenarios in mind that involved exiting from the spacecraft, you might well find a way to put ejection seats in for everybody or encapsulated, you know, a nose compartment that would break off and be the recovery vehicle. I recall one time when uh, uh, the Russian chief designer, uh, after the wall came down and we were starting to be friends with the Russians, they sent several of their, their VIPs uh, to make the rounds at all the space centers. And at one point, I was sitting in a, in a meeting with, with the, uh, the Russian chief designer for Zvezda, the company that built the life support systems and the ejection seats for the Buran and, and uh, you know, the spacesuits for all the, the other vehicles. It came around that, that when they were talking about Buran flights, the Russian space shuttle flights, somebody on our side asked him, uh, well, what's the, how do you, how are you going to get the people out of the Buran in case of a, 
a failure, and he said, ejection seats. Hmm. And they said, but you can only carry two ejection seats. And he said, that's right, two ejection seats. He didn't see any sense in having more than two people on the Baran, and they were each going to get an ejection seat. So that's sort of a, a sort of an independent validation of the fact that uh, you know you can have ejection seats, but just not that many, and it's just not that practical to, to have up. You, know, you couldn't have seven ejection seats because they'd be interfering with each other, and they'd be you know flying through somebody else's plume, and, and you know take a long time to get out, and all that kind of stuff. So it's a different philosophy, you know, as you understand the Orion and the Soyuz and the Shenzhou and even the, the Starliner and the. The crew dragon are going to use intact abort. They're going to get the crew compartment away from the vehicle through launch escape systems instead of trying to put the astronauts separately outside the side hatch. Have you dealt at all in the research of like having medical equipment for a Mars trip also being dual use is like scientific? The first application of dual use is between clinical and research purposes. You know, the, it makes sense then to talk about the you know common blood pressure cuff for the doctors and for the researchers if you're going to be measuring blood pressure. Dual use for scientific purposes and for medical purposes is a bit problematical. I mean, we, we are using the same glove box on the space station for for life sciences research and for you know microgravity research and for uh, you know, physical sciences research. But if you're talking about uh, maintaining a sterile field, well, then you have to worry about all of the, the leftovers from the physical sciences research that you'd have to figure out some way to, to scoop up and, and uh, make sure they don't interfere with the biological aspects. But if you know, and I, I actually queried a friend of mine, George Pantelos, who spent a lot of time thinking about medical, surgical aspects of spaceflight, and he did mention the fact that you might have such things as, uh, say, a 3D scanner that you can use both to document a geological specimen and to uh, measure a limb in case you had to build a split for it or something like that. So there may be some, some of those aspects, but generally speaking, neither the doctors nor the engineers or the, the uh, physical scientists want to have their device used by somebody else. They don't want to have, you know, the geologists don't want to have to wipe the blood off of their spectrometer and the, and the doctors don't want to have to get all of the, the dust and the dirt out of their, their wounds, you know, of the, of the patients. So, so there may well be dual use in the sense that the same technology can be used, but it's, you know, I'm not sure we're going to see the same item of hardware used for multiple applications uh, unless it can be made to, to keep the right kind of pristine condition for both of them. Interestingly enough, Tom, when you mentioned that, now that I'm thinking about it, something I never thought I would see, what I'm starting to hear about now, is that on the Orion and on the, uh, perhaps the, uh, the Deep Space Gateway, there may well be the avionics of the spacecraft that does dual use, that does, that does medical as well as operational engineering kind of things. That it may be that you can plug your ultrasound screen into a port in the, the side of the control console and it'll drive your ultrasound device as opposed to having a separate ultrasound device with its own electronics and its own batteries and fans and everything uh, or its own laptop even, which is how it's run largely now. So there may be that aspect of dual use, you know, common avionics for different applications. Ah, so ultrasound's basically an app on your ops console. I like that. That might be, yeah. Well, that's, that's the kind of uh, weight saving we're going to have to think about as we get further and further out, that's for sure. That's for sure. Great. I really enjoyed tonight. Thanks. Great. Enjoyed it myself, Tom. Thanks. Emily, do you have any questions before we continue on with um, the other questions we have? Talk just now a little bit about, you know, ultrasound, you know, in space. Uh, from what I recall, I think the 
first ultrasound in space was in 1985. That's right. I was working with Mike Bungo, who was the PI for that, so we were all part of that. Uh, it was called the AFE, the American Flight Echo. And so anyhow, there was a fridge device that was also being built. It was a, a device originally built to fly to the beer, and because the French astronaut was going to fly on the flight before us, he was going to fly his ultrasound. And so we were in sort of a bit of a race to see who was going to get theirs in flight first. Uh, ours turned out to be second, but much more uh, user-friendly and effective. It had a better dis- uh, display screen and uh, more capabilities. And Ray Seddon, the doctor on 51D, the first flight of Ray Seddon, uh, she was our ultrasound operator. Another interesting aspect, uh, Emily, since you brought it up, is that we spent a lot of time trying to train astronauts to be ultrasound operators. And it turns out that ultrasound operators take an awful lot of time just because they have to know what they're looking at and they have to know how to to maneuver the probes to get the best images uh, in people, and people are not all built the same. So you got to know enough of what you're looking at, what the what the, uh, the 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 cardiologist needs to see, for example, for for cardiac ultrasounds to to get the right image and the right data to make a clinical judgment. We didn't have that luxury of, of time. You know, we we had hours to train the astronaut and not months, which is what a clinical cardiologist or a clinical uh, ultrasound uh, specialist would, would require. So for years, we dabbled in ultrasound and uh, essentially said, you know what, it's, there's other ways to get the data or we'll just do without the data. But then along came the space station era, and we have on the space station now excellent ultrasound capabilities not because we've trained the astronauts, but because we coach the astronauts in real time. We have an sonographer on the ground looking at a display of the of the uh, image that the astronaut is developing with ultrasound and saying, okay, tilt left, tilt right, move back, move forward, until you get the image that you want. So the astronauts learn basic skills, you know, how to hold a probe, how to move, how to respond and, and, uh, to the uh, guidance of a sonographer on the ground, but they're not required to learn how to be clinical uh, sonographers themselves. They're just learned how to, they're, they're qualified to be the, the peripheral end of that. So they, the sonographer, instead of moving the probe him or herself, tells the astronaut how to move the probe to get the desired view. And that is turning out to be a, a remarkable accomplishment uh, for, for both clinical and research purposes on the space station. That pretty much answers my question, because uh, my, my question was, you know, uh, how much has, you know, ultrasound technology, has it, a, a, you know, has it advanced? I'm not a doctor or anything, so, um, you know, I'm sure it's advanced a lot since, you know, 1985. Well, it has because of, because of things like laptops. You know, our first ultrasound device that we had was a, a commercial off-the-shelf device that was essentially hardened for spaceflight, and that meant just coating the board so that the various components didn't shake off during during launch. But it was sized; it was chosen specifically because it was small enough to fit into a, a mid-deck locker. You remember the lockers on the, the forward aspect of the of the mid-deck yes. and the payload bay were, I think, two cubic feet and forty pounds. That's what the the volume and mass capability of a mid-deck locker was, and the device that we found was two cubic feet and 40 pounds. Nowadays, it's, it is as big as a, as a, a an iPod or, or you know, a Walkman or, or essentially, you know, like Tom was saying, it's an app in your, in your laptop. You, you can plug the peripherals, you know, the probes into the USB ports, and, and the computing power is so much better than it was, and the imaging is so much better than it was, and you can do virtual imaging and, and uh, you know, 3D imaging and all that kind of stuff that, that, that 
we imagined but never actually had the capability to do before. So yes, ultrasound actually is now the imaging uh, capability of choice in long-duration spaceflight just because it doesn't cause any radiation and it's uh, it's fairly compatible with you know with all the avionics and the electronics. Wow. Okay, that's awesome. Yeah, because I was curious about that myself because I'm used. To, I, I've I've had maybe one ultrasound in my life. You know, I, I had to get my heart ultrasounded once, and I remember this was years, like over 20 years ago. I remember it was this big old machine, and I'm like, how can you carry that into space? You know, and I, not being you know a doctor, or a, a you know a technician, I, I I wouldn't know. You know, so that that's a fascinating answer. Thank you. Yeah, nowadays uh, cardiologist brings his or her uh, laptop with uh, the probes with them on, on rounds, and they can do the measurements on you when they see you. Awesome. Okay. Yeah. That's pretty cool. Yeah, it is cool. All right. All right, cool. Well, maybe we can move into some questions related to the Shuttle Mir program. And from your perspective, lessons learned from the Russian program and some questions related to that having to do with Differences in data collection between the U.S. and Russian programs and how that may have impacted lessons learned. And then also, philosophically, how does medical treatment differ, or is it the same or different, between the Russians uh, and the U.S.? Well, again, I'm not, I'm not a flight surgeon. I'm not a physician. So I can, only, I can only suggest some differences in medical care. I mean, the Russian philosophy in general is is a different approach to medical care than us. I, I get the impression that the Russians sometimes think we're, we're too delicate and, and too easily bruised and uh, discomforted and that we need to be just tougher about uh, life in general. Uh, so that, that does translate into their medical uh, medical care aspects. There, there are fl- Russian flight surgeons that accompany their, their cosmonauts when they come over for baseline data collection and for training and uh, you know they're all skilled physicians, but they have different approaches and different attitudes, uh, just as you'll find between different cultures uh, elsewhere, not including the U.S. and Russians. So I, that's really about all I can say without sounding you know, too bigoted about, uh, about the, the medical care. I will say that in terms of research data, the Russians have had a different philosophy. They've, they've been satisfied with smaller sample sizes and smaller data sets. They've been more satisfied with those than we have been. We have uh, again, the Russians have, have wondered why we spend so much time collecting the same data over and over again. Uh, if you do it once, isn't that good enough? And if you do it twice, isn't that doesn't that confirm everything you need to know? And, and on the other hand, we we, we on the west uh, on the western side spend a lot of time worried about statistical validity and statistical reliability and, and biological variability. If you make the same, if you make measurements in two people. That's not a confirmation. That's just uh, the beginning. Those are two case studies. We need, typically, we'd like to have six or eight or ten astronauts doing the same thing, getting the same measurements, so we can average out the biological variability that's inevitable between people. I remember one time a, a Russian scientist was saying that they got this or that data set on, I think he said, six cosmonauts. And I thought, well, okay, that's pretty good. He says, yeah, out of those six, we've identified four different patterns of response to spaceflight. Which means, you know, he's, he's identified, he's seen some variations in all six of them. One or two of them look like each other. And so he's figured, okay, there's, there must be, let's say, four different ways that the human body can respond to this or that parameter or this or that perturbation in spaceflight. So six people would be barely enough for one study for us. And the Russians identified multiple studies in that same data set. So it's a different philosophy, a different way of looking at things. Now the Russians, did have uh, 
continue to have a, a lot of expertise in, in people in spaceflight. The data they have collected over the years, which you can you can go see, a lot of it was translated, a lot of it's available in the open literature, and it's a simple matter for anybody to make a comparison between a, a Western and a, and a Russian publication and see what you think about uh, the statistics, the sample size, the description of measurements that are being made, the interpretation of the results, all of those things are open for anybody to see. And uh, it is my, my uh, impression that, that the Russians are... are more willing to accept results that we are less willing to accept. They're more willing to, to make inferences than we have been uh, historically in the past. And mm. so it's it's just a difference in philosophy. Like I said, the Russians have been very successful. Uh, you can say they've been doing something right, or you know they've been they were doing good things. They were doing things without us, before, you know, before we came along with our statistical analyses and our large sample sizes and all that sort of stuff and people were doing just fine in spaceflight so are we overly obsessive and, and worried about uh, trivial details or are we just doing uh, asking different questions mm-hmm. or you know here's another one and I've, I've tossed this out there as sort of a, of a sort of a hand grenade to some of my con my uh, colleagues in the life sciences maybe we're not doing anything at all maybe the human body is just doing what the human body does and that you know we we figure we understand it, and it doesn't care whether we understand it or not. It just does what it wants to do. Well, I think there is some truth to that. We hope you enjoyed this latest offering by Space 3D. Join us for the conclusion of our interview with John Charles in our next podcast.